0: Well, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to John 15. Oh God, reveal Your glory through the preaching of Your Word, so that every heart would confess that Christ is Lord. That is our prayer. This morning, that's our prayer. Every time we gather together and we hear the Word of God proclaimed We pray that we would see Christ. And this morning, we pray that we would see Christ so glorious, so magnificent, that even the persecution that we would suffer would be nothing compared to the glory that is revealed in Jesus Christ. Um, John 15, we are in the Upper Room Discourse. Chapters 13-17 through all taking place on Thursday night of the Passion Week. We have been making our way through this text. It's five full chapters on just one evening. Jesus is preparing his disciples, making sure that they are ready for his departure to carry on the ministry that he began uh, without him and still with him because he will abide with them through the Spirit. The main lesson in all of these verses is there's a very tight unity between Jesus and his disciples, his followers. He's about to leave, but they can still remain in him and he will be with them We looked at chapter 15, verses 1 through 11, dealing with uh, abiding in Christ, the the vine and the branches. It was about our relationship as believers to Jesus. Then last week, we looked at chapter 15, verses 12 through 17, which is really the branches and the branches together, Um, our relationship with one another, the love that we must have for one another. This morning we come to the end of this chapter, verses 18 through 27, and really we're going to look at four verses into chapter 16, no chapter breaks in the original uh, manuscripts, just one continuous paragraph, paragraph, paragraph going, moving forward. So there's no division in the original, and I believe that there shouldn't be a division here as far as a chapter break, because the theme is the same. It's the vine and the branches relationship to the world. We saw the vine and the branches with one another, the branches and the branches together, and now we end this chapter with the branches and the vine together and their relationship with the world. So let's read these verses. John chapter 15, verse 18, and we'll be reading all the way down to chapter 16, verse 4. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my Father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sin. But now they have both seen and hated me and my Father as well. But they've done this to fulfill the word that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. When the Helper comes... "...whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. And you will testify also, because you have been with me from the beginning. These things I have spoken to you, so that you may be kept from stumbling. They will make you outcast from the synagogue. But an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. These things they will do, because they have not known the Father, or me." But these things I have spoken to you so that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you of them. These things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. Father, we we ask that we would feel the gravity of these words this morning. We need extra grace. We need supernatural help to feel these words because we don't really feel the external pressure that these words say we will feel. We should feel. We don't feel in the same way that our brothers and sisters around the world feel. There are some at this very moment in prison, and if they were to read these words, they would say, yes, of course, I know, I understand, I'm living this. Father, there are some who before we finish our service this morning will be ushered from this life into the next because of their love for you. So Father, I pray that these verses would not be some hypothetical if this might potentially happen in our lifetime but that we would feel with the rest of the church, with the majority of the church, universal, the weight of these verses, the way that they are feeling it in this very moment. And I pray that you would embolden our hearts, that you would prepare us for suffering, that you would prepare us for persecution, that you would prepare us for... The hatred of the world, and that we would be able to say, even now with our brothers and sisters around the world, that if we have your love, it doesn't matter if the world hates us. And if the world loves us because we turn our back on you, it doesn't matter if we have the world's love when we don't have the favor and the love of our Master. So Father, I pray this morning that You would create in us an ability to see, to perceive, to feel, and to know the persecution that is happening even as we speak. Prepare our hearts. Open our eyes to behold wonderful things from Your Word. We pray in Your name. Amen. In 2013... Uh, 100 million Christians around the world suffered persecution. To put that into a perspective that we might understand, that would be all the residents of California, Texas, New York, and Florida combined. Or to put it in another another perspective, that's a third of all Americans persecuted. 100 million Christians around the world suffering persecution. And that was a, a double from the previous year. In 2012, 50 million Christians around the world suffered persecution. It's all over the place. Syria, Nigeria, Pakistan, Egypt, all over the place. In North Korea, at this very moment, over 100,000 Christians live in prison camps. Last year, 2016, over 215 million Christians around the world suffered persecution. And over 100,000 of those were killed for their faith. The Center for the Study of Global Christianity, which is an academic research center that monitors worldwide demographic trends in Christianity, estimates that between the years 2005 and 2015, 100 million Christians were martyred. 100 million. That's an average of 100,000 Christians every year. And if you add up all of human history... And all of the martyrdom of the church, in all of history, over two-thirds of all Christian martyrs were martyred after the start of the 20th century. But we don't really feel this. We're so desensitized to this. How should we think about it? How should we feel? We have one day set aside. Last week, the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church, one day that we try to remember and bring it into our sights what is happening to our brothers and sisters around the world, and maybe what's going to happen to us in the future. Maybe it's the near future, maybe it's the far future, but we know it will happen because the Bible says all who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, and that's echoing the words of Jesus here in the Upper Room Discourse. This This passage has been so love-centered, so happy, so other than the fact that Jesus is leaving and they kind of don't understand that, I'm going away to prepare a place for you. You'll be with me one day. I love you. You love me. My joy will be in you. It will be full. And then all of a sudden a turn in verse 18, if the world hates you. Why? Why this turn? Well, if you go back to chapter 14, verse 22, Judas, not Iscariot, asked Jesus, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us, but not to the world? Um, the, The last couple paragraphs that we've been looking at, Jesus has been answering that question of, here's why I'm disclosing myself to you. And now Jesus is answering, and here's why the world isn't getting this. They aren't understanding this. They won't receive this. So this is kind of Jesus' response to Judas' question of, what about the world? What about the world? And Jesus is going to say, the world is going to hate you. That's our reality, verse 18. If the world hates you, it's a conditional clause, but it's, it's a, uh, going to happen since. You could put, since the world is going to hate you, you will know that it hated me before it hated you. We will be known for our love, Jesus just said in the previous paragraph. And they will be known for their hatred of us. One of the reasons why we're commanded to love each other is because we're not going to get love from the world. We need to love each other and be intimately devoted to one another because that's not going to be happening from the world. The world will be hostile. We will be persecuted. This is our reality as believers. 2 Timothy 3, verse 12. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus. All who desire, not even who are living godly lives, but all who desire to live. Godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. The disciples knew this. Peter was crucified upside down. Andrew was crucified, survived for uh, two days hanging on the cross. And we have record that he was preaching to people while he was nailed to a cross. James was beheaded, but not before his accuser, the one who had betrayed him and turned him in, was converted and asked to be beheaded alongside of James. Philip was crucified, Bartholomew was skinned alive and beheaded, Thomas was run through with a spear, Matthew was killed with swords, James was stoned and clubbed to death, Thaddeus was crucified, Simon the Zealot was crucified, only the Apostle John did not die a martyr's death, but that's not for lack of trying. The Romans uh, attempted to kill him by throwing him into a pot of boiling oil. And somehow he miraculously survived. I think it was only by God's amazing grace in his life because he still had yet to write the book of Revelation, and so God preserved him, sent him, exiled him to the island of Patmos, and there he wrote Revelation and died in exile. Jesus says, the world will hate you. The world, this is the evil fallen world system Satan is the ruler of this world, and he prowls around like a roaring lion, and because he's the ruler, the world will follow their ruler's lead and hate the ones that he hates. But why? Why? Jesus is going to answer this question. Why will people hate, why will the world hate Christians? We're going to see two main points this morning. Number one, we're going to see the Um, reasons for the persecution that we're going through. The reasons for persecution, Jesus is going to outline several of the reasons why we are going to be persecuted, and then he's going to give us the response to that persecution. How should we feel about it? What should we think about it? How should we feel? What are the reasons for the persecution, and what should our response be? Well, verse 19 begins the reasons. There are four reasons why persecution happens, why the world hates us. The first is that we are not of this world. Verse 19, if you were of the world, the world would love its own, but because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world because of this, reason number one, the world hates you. It's because you are not of this world. The world hates those who are aliens and strangers in their world. It's not our home, right? This world is not our home. We're just passing through And even more than that, this world is dead to us. We don't love it. We don't like it. We don't want to be a part of the system of this world. But the system of this world is home sweet home to the world. That's actually what Jesus says here in verse 19. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Not its own people. There would be a very specific way of saying it would love its own people. The worldly people would love its own people But that's not what this is saying in the Greek. This is saying the world loves itself, its culture, its system. The world loves itself. The world loves its own things. Not necessarily its own people, but its own things. The world loves itself. And when you and I called out of this world, say, I used to love those things, I don't love those things anymore, and now I actually detest those things, and I call them evil, and I love the one who died to free me from those things, the world will say, you're crazy. Don't trash on our home. This is home sweet home. And if you don't love it like we do, then just get out. Romans chapter 1 verse 32 the world will start giving hearty approval. You remember that passage? They will give hearty approval to those who are doing wickedness. We are standing on the outside saying, not only do we not give hearty approval, but we condemn. We say, that's wrong. I don't want to live in that, and you shouldn't live in that either. The world will kill those who say, this evil worldly system will kill you. It will destroy your soul. But that's what they love. They love. One commentator says this way, to put it at its widest level, the world is always suspect of non-conformity. The world loves its pattern. It likes to be able to label a person and to classify him and to put him in a pigeonhole, and anyone who does not conform to that pattern will certainly meet trouble. William Temple says the world would not hate angels for being angelic, But it does hate men for being Christians. It grudges them their new character. It's tormented by their peace. It is infuriated by their joy. And ultimately, we become like a conscience to them. We say, I can't be about these things. I can't love these things. And Jesus says, because you're not of the world anymore, the world will hate you. That's exactly what he said about himself. If you go back to John chapter 7, John chapter 7, in context, Jesus' brothers are talking to him. His brothers do not believe in him at this point. And his brothers are asking him, let's go from here into Judea. We want to see the works that you're doing. And Jesus says this, verse 7, John chapter 7, verse 7, the world cannot hate you. You're of the system. It's not going to hate those who are inside of the system. You love the system, so it loves you. It's not going to hate you, but it hates me. Why? Because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. The world hated Jesus because he testifies to them and he says to them, this is wrong, this is sin, this is going against God's design for you. It's the exact same thing that happened to John the Baptist. He was beheaded because he preached against the sexual immorality of Herod. The reality is, Jesus says to his disciples, they're going to hate you. They love their worldly system. They love their sin. They love their things. And as you're called out of those things and and you have a new affection for completely different things, heavenly things, holy things, they're going to start hating you. His disciples needed to hear that. We need to hear that too. We live in a day and age clearly where morality is all over the charts. It's all over the map. You can't pin it down. Even the idea of absolute truth or absolute morals, there's, there's a debate about that. There are many people who don't even think that those exist. Morality is whatever you define. And if we step into this culture and we say, no, there is such a thing as a moral standard, we've fallen short of it. It is God. And he tells us because he reveals himself to us in his word, this is the moral standard. We don't have to be mean about it. We shouldn't be angry about it. John the Baptist wasn't. John the Baptist, I think, is one of the best pictures in the scripture of what it looks like to be a testimony and a witness. He's killed for what he's preaching, but Herod, you remember when Herod imprisons him? Herod says that he loves to listen to him preach. So he loves listening to John the Baptist, even though he doesn't like what he's saying, he loves the way that he's saying it. The message that we present to the world is going to be offensive by its very nature. We don't need to make it more offensive. We need to present the truth in love. But the reality is, if we say there is a standard, it's in God's Word. I am His slave. I do what He tells me to do. He gives me His will, and I live it out. Not perfectly. That's why I need Jesus. We're not holier than thou. That's not why we should be being persecuted. But because our will is dead, and we we desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus, we desire to live according to God's will, the world will say no. No, your system is wrong because it is conflicting with my desires. It's conflicting with what I love. How dare you tell me that I can't love what I love? Jesus says, you've been chosen. I chose you out of this world. I chose you out of this world. That's literally where we get the Greek word for church, ecclesia. We've been called out, called out of the world, called out to a new relationship with God. We've been called out. And he says, I chose you for myself, therefore since I chose you, you must deny the world. You can't have both. You can't serve two masters. You can't decide to follow Jesus and decide to love the world. Either you'll love the one and hate the other, you'll submit to the one and despise the other. No one can serve two masters. I wonder if this has been lost in our evangelism We need to share with people that following Jesus will make your relationship with this world change. That has to be a part of the gospel presentation. When we go back to one of the most popular Christianese phrases, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, I understand what people are trying to say by that, I think. I'll give them the benefit of the doubt. But what if God loves you and His wonderful plan for your life is your martyrdom? What if it's that everybody around you hates you, wants to kill you, imprisons you, tortures you, and then chops your head off? We need to present the gospel in such a way that we're saying you're making a choice and your will must submit to Jesus, and when you do that, the world will hate you. The world persecutes Christians, the world hates Christians. Reason number one, because Christians are not of this world. Reason number two is because the world hates Jesus. This is verse 20. The world hates Jesus. Remember the word that I said to you, Jesus says, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you too. This is an argument from the greater to the lesser, an a fortiori argument. I am the greatest, Jesus is saying, I am the master. And if they hate me, they're going to hate anybody underneath. They're going to hate anybody who follows condemnation by association, as it were. And they'll persecute you. That word is chase you down like a wild beast, pursue you, hunt you down to kill you. Jesus is going to say at the very end uh, of our time together in chapter 16, verse 4, these things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. They hate me right now. Jesus is saying they hate me, and all of their anger and all their hatred is going at me but when I leave, they're not going to have me to hate anymore, so they're going to turn their hatred on you. Turn to Colossians chapter 1. There's a verse in Colossians that many people struggle with. I I think it's a little bit more simple than it seems at first read. This is one of the verses that the Catholic Church would use to say that we need to re-crucify, re-sacrifice Jesus every time we take the sacraments, every time we take the communion elements, they would call the Mass. Every time you do that, you need to re-sacrifice Jesus because there's something that is lacking in his initial sacrifice. They get that from Colossians chapter 1 verse 24. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now that's a It's a dangerous verse because that can be used to promote heresy. Christ's afflictions have some lacking, insufficient element to them, and therefore we need to add something, our own good works, our own whatever, something to them. If you look at the context and you look at what happened even in Paul's own life, and you just look at the upper room discourse, what Paul is saying is this. When Jesus was here, people hated him. And they took out their anger and aggression and hatred on him. And when he left, their anger and hatred was not satisfied. There was something lacking in what they wanted to do. They want Jesus dead. They want to be able to see him paraded around as dead. And he is killed, but he rises from the dead and he ascends into heaven. They are not satisfied with their persecution and their anger and the hatred towards Jesus. So they are going to then turn their hatred to believers. They can't get to Jesus anymore, but they can get to His followers. So, we will be persecuted as believers because they hate Jesus. And since we are His followers, they're going to hate those who love what they hate. The reality is, if Jesus took the cross for me, then I can take the persecution for Him. And there's a, a small promise that's placed inside of verse 20 If they persecuted me, they'll also persecute you, but if they kept my word, they'll keep yours too. Look, they'll hate you, but those who would obey me and follow me as you preach the gospel, they will obey me and follow me through your preaching. But they will hate you. The majority will hate you. They will hate you because you're not of the world. They'll hate you because they hate Jesus. They will hate you and persecute you. Number three, reason number three, because the world doesn't know God. They'll hate you because they don't know God. This is verses 21 through 24. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake because they don't know the one who sent me. They don't know the Father. They don't know God. They hate God. He says, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sin." It's guilt. They would not have the specific guilt. This is not all of their sin, all of their guilt. It's, they would not have the specific guilt of rejecting me and rejecting the Father who sent me. If I hadn't come, they wouldn't have had the opportunity to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Remember the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Jesus is performing miracles by the power of the Spirit. And they say, uh, we don't believe you're doing it by the power of the Spirit. We believe you're doing it by the power of Satan. And Jesus says, if I had done these miracles in other cities, they would have repented and believed, but you have not. And therefore, this is the unforgivable sin. You're determined in your disbelief. You will not submit to me. And therefore, that's it. If you reject me, visibly seeing me here, that is the guilt that you have that will not be forgiven. They have no excuse for their sin. They saw me. They saw the exact representation of the Father. And that's why Jesus says in verse 23, He who hates me hates my Father also. They don't know the Father and they hate the Father. They don't know him. What do they know? Turn back to John chapter 3. John chapter 3 verse 19. This is the judgment. That the light has come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. They don't know God because they know their sin. They don't love God because they love their sin. They love the darkness so they don't love the light. Turn to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. John I, Again, I believe 1 John is an exposition of the Upper Room Discourse. But 1 John chapter 3 verse 12 Cain, who was of the evil one, slew his brother. Why, John? Why did did Cain kill his brother? For what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. He loved his own deeds. He loved his sin. He loved his evil. And he didn't want somebody else's life pointing to the fact that his his life was sinful. His deeds were evil. And that's why, verse 13, don't be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. Don't be surprised. Cain loved his sin and hated anybody who would stand out in opposition against his love. So don't be surprised as you stand by by the very nature of you being chosen out of this world. Don't be surprised when people hate you, when persecution comes. Turn back to John chapter 15. Jesus says, we will be hated because we are not of the world. We love the Lord now. We don't love the things of this world, so we will be persecuted because we don't, we're not in the world. We don't love the world. We're not a part of the worldly system. We'll be hated by the world because the world hates Jesus. We'll be hated by the world because the world does not know the Father. And finally, in verse 25, we will be hated and persecuted by the world to fulfill Scripture. This is reason number four, to fulfill Scripture. In verse 25, Jesus says, But they have done this, to fulfill the word that is written in their own law. They hated me without a cause. I gave them no cause to hate me, but they hated me. You're going to give them no cause to hate you. Again, please hear that clearly. We should not be purposefully offensive. We should not try to be pejorative in our language and start arguments and make people angry. We should simply preach the truth in love And by declaring, my authority is this, I don't have an opinion outside of this book, this is my authority, people will say, no. And they'll hate you for it. This is to fulfill scripture. They hated me without a cause. I love that word. That's one word in the Greek, without a cause. I love that word. Um, Romans chapter 3 uses that word, Paul uses it in Romans 3. We are justified freely as a gift, without a cause. We had no cause in and of ourselves that made God say, Oh, I need to save that person. We were justified freely as a gift without any doing that we could do on our own. But Jesus says here in John 15 this is the plan, persecution is the plan. He's going to say it in verse 1 of chapter 16, these things I've spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. When these things happen to you, you shouldn't be afraid, you shouldn't be surprised. This is all part of the plan. You can write down 1 Peter chapter 2 and 4. Um, In 1 Peter, Peter tells the church who is suffering, don't be surprised that fiery trials, fiery ordeals are coming upon you. This is part of the plan. It's part of prophecy yeah, but we could ask, okay, hang on, time out, but how are we going to survive this? If this is part of the plan and part of the prophecy that persecution is going to come, what are we supposed to do? We see the, the reasons for persecution that Jesus has given to his disciples and he gives to us as well, but now the response. How do we respond to this? How are we going to be able to survive? How are we going to be able to minister? How are we going to be able to be encouraged and emboldened in our faith to go proclaim the gospel that we're dying for? Jesus answers that in verse 26. The helper is going to come. The helper is going to come. And in these verses, in our remaining time, we will see three responses to persecution. So we have four reasons that Jesus explicitly gave us for why persecution happens. And now, three responses. Number one, we will have supernatural comfort. We will have supernatural comfort. Even when persecution comes, we will have supernatural comfort. Verse 26, when the helper comes... Whom I will send to you. This is the Comforter. And he'll come directly from the Father. He's the Spirit of truth. He proceeds from the Father. He will testify about me. You're not going to lose your testimony because I'm going to send a Comforter who will always be with you, who will never leave you, who will seal you for that day of redemption. You cannot be lost. If you have the Spirit, Romans chapter 8 nothing can separate you from God. Not even nakedness, famine, peril, or the sword. Paul tells us the sword itself can't separate us. I think he's getting that from Luke chapter 21. In Luke 21, Jesus says something very fascinating. He says, because of me, the world will hate you, and they're going to kill you, but don't be afraid, because on that day, not even a hair on your head will perish. They're going to kill you, Maybe cut your head off, but don't worry. The hairs on your head will be okay. What is Jesus saying? They can do whatever they want to do in this life to your body. But when you die, they can't touch your body in the next life. And I will keep it. I will hold it. I will preserve it. That's why he says, don't be afraid of man. What can they do to you? They can kill you. Be afraid of the one who can kill your eternal soul who can kill your body in the next life. We should have supernatural comfort. The Holy Spirit is coming. Obviously, for the disciples, He's coming. For us, He's here. He's with us. And He testifies about Jesus to us, even now as we're reading Scripture. He tells us in Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, to you it has been gifted to suffer for my namesake persecution is a gift. We receive supernatural comfort that changes the way we even think about persecution. It's a gift. Why is it a gift? Because it's proving that we love Christ, that we don't love the world, that we're set apart, that we've been chosen. That's why Matthew chapter 5 verses 10 through 12, we rejoice because we're blessed when we're persecuted. That's why you hear often in like Voice of the Martyrs and and other magazines like that where Persecuted church is saying, don't pray for us, pray with us, because if you pray for us, you're going to be praying the wrong things, because you're going to pray things like, please make persecution stop. They say we don't pray for that. Persecution is a blessing, it's a gift from God. It's fulfillment of prophecy. Don't pray that the scriptures wouldn't be fulfilled. Pray that we would persevere to the end, be a witness on behalf of the gospel, and show that Christ is Lord and by far better than anything that this world has to offer. Persecution advances the gospel, it produces perseverance, it brings joy. So the first response to persecution that Jesus says is, you're going to get supernatural spiritual comfort. The second response is, you will have bold obedience. Verse 27, you will testify also because you've been with me from the beginning. So Jesus says, if you love me, you are going to die for the gospel. I think at that point, if I'm in the upper room, I would think, I don't know. You've just told us that we're supposed to live out the ministry that you're leaving behind. Don't know if I want to do that now that you've just told me, as you do this, you'll be killed for it. And Jesus is saying, hey, for anybody in this room who's thinking that, you will testify also. Don't worry, you'll obey me. Even though your obedience will get you killed, you're still going to obey. Because the Spirit's with you and because you've been with me. You know that I'm Lord. So it produces bold obedience. Despite the persecution because of the gospel, you're still going to preach the gospel. You've been with me from the beginning. To know the gospel has an inherent command to share that gospel. That's why Jesus says in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, You will be my witnesses. The, the word witness in the Greek, it's where we get martyr from. Um We, when we hear martyr, we hear a Christian who has been killed for their faith. That's not what that word originally meant. Martyr in the Greek just meant somebody who goes out to witness, somebody goes out to testify. But it started to carry with it somebody who's dying for the gospel because everybody who was witnessing and testifying on behalf of Jesus was being killed. So the word martyr took on new meaning to say witnesses who are being killed. Jesus says, be bold. Yes, you will die for your faith but they can't hurt you. They can kill you, but they can't hurt you. And the word that I've spoken to you will testify against the world and you will be able to preach with boldness the gospel that you're dying for. So, supernatural comfort is one response. Bold obedience is the next response. And finally, sober-mindedness is the final response. Sober-mindedness, number three, Our third response to persecution, this is chapter 16, verses 1 through 4. Jesus says, I've given you all these things. I've spoken these things to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. That word stumbling is scandalizo. It's um, a scandal, something that's presented before you. It literally means a stick that's a part of a trap that's kind of curved and bent, so you can't really see it, and the trap's going to fly and catch you. That's what that Greek word means. And Jesus says, I don't want you to be stuck in a trap. As you go through the persecution that happens, I don't want it to trap you and make you think, wait, this wasn't part of the plan. I didn't know that this was happening. Jesus says, it's prophesied in Scripture. I'm telling you, I'm forewarning you. And to be forewarned is to be forearmed. So now you can go out into the world knowing this is going to happen. It won't take you by surprise. I'm saying this so that you don't walk into something, into a trap that will make you stumble. It's going to be tempting to abandon the vine. This is Mark chapter 4. There's an entire soil in the parable of the soils, four soils, there's an entire soil that's devoted to people who receive the gospel with joy, start to grow, but when persecution because of the word arises, they say, I'm done. Jesus says, I'm telling you this now, so that won't be you. And I believe that we should hear that clearly this morning. Jesus is telling us these things so that we won't fall away when persecution arises. Jesus says, I want you to be sober-minded. They're going to kick you out of the synagogue. Sounds not that big of a deal. Get a vacation from church. Okay, what's the big point on this? To be thrown out of the synagogue, you remember in John chapter 9, the man born blind, he says, that I don't want to be thrown out of the synagogue, and his parents don't, so his parents lie about what's going on, that uh, he was actually healed by Jesus. They, they don't want to be involved in it because they don't want to be apo synagoge, a, thrown out, cast out of the synagogue. Why? Because it wasn't just being thrown out of church. It was being thrown out of Jewish life as you know it. You have a, a stamp. You have the scarlet letter, so to speak, such that you can't go buy something from a Jewish person. You're outside of the economy. You're outside of the neighborhood. You're outside of the community. You can no longer be a part of anything that's going on. You have to move If you have time to, you might be killed before then. You're going to be cast out. People are going to kill you thinking that they're offering a service to God. Paul did that before he was Paul. When he was Saul, he was killing Christians thinking that he was serving God. These things they will do to you, verse 3, because they don't know the Father or me. He already said that. This is the reasons. But I've spoken these things to you so that when the hour comes, you may remember that I told you this. It won't be a stumbling block. You know You're not going to be surprised. And I didn't say these things to you at the beginning because you didn't need to hear them. I was receiving all of the abuse, but now that I'm leaving, you need to know the abuse is going to be headed your way. So we have reasons for persecution. We have response to persecution. What should we do in response to this text? We should receive what Jesus tells us to receive, the spiritual comfort of the Holy Spirit. We should boldly share our faith, obey in sharing the gospel, be ambassadors. We should be sober-minded about the days ahead, as our brothers and sisters are around the world. We should pray for our brothers and sisters. Um, be a part of the Voice of the Martyrs magazine or, or read online articles. Um, get the, the persecuted church in front of your eyes so that you know what your family members are going through. Thank God for the grace that he's given in these moments and take advantage of them while we still have the freedom and liberty we have. Talk candidly with your family and your children. Um, don't shy away from these things. Read Fox's Book of Martyrs with them. Don't, don't try to um, coddle them and, and, and make them unaware of what's happening in the world. I think that we need to be alert. Um, even as we're sharing the gospel, we need to be aware that we have an enemy who hates us. He can't wait to bring the persecution that's happening in the Middle East or around the world. He can't wait to bring it here. And one day it probably will come. And to that end, I think that we need to be, we need to be very careful as believers, especially in a, in a Western mindset. Christianity, as far as evangelicalism is concerned, Christianity has become so experientially minded that. If I have a good experience with God, we we even have a name for it, right? Mountaintop experience. If I have a mountaintop experience with God, that'll give me more spiritual energy and a spiritual Red Bull to keep going and love Jesus. God allows us moments like that, right? He allowed Moses on the mountain in such a way that his face was shining with the glory of God and he had to wear a veil. But Moses says, I want that every day. Who doesn't want that? I want to be with him in the presence of God every day, see his face every day. I want to be with him. And God says, no. You have my law, and that's like being with me. Talking as a friend talks with a friend. This is what you have. So yes, we might have experiences that are enjoyable, that do boost our faith. But here's my question. You go to... North Korea, you go to Iraq, you go to Iran, you go to Jordan, and you ask the pastors and the believers that are there in prison or have family members who are being persecuted, tortured, and being killed for the gospel, and you say, what is keeping your faith alive? I don't think any of them will say, good mountaintop experiences. What's it going to be? It's going to be this. A rich, deep theological understanding of suffering, of persecution, and of the gospel. I've been chosen out of this world. What can they do to me? So enjoy the experiences, yes, but don't cling to them. Undergird yourself with truth. Don't be spiritually out of shape. Cling to the gospel. Cling to the gospel. One story from the voice of the martyrs as we close. There's a a man named Haim in Cambodia in the 1970s. Haim is a believer, and his whole family followed Jesus. And the Cambodian uh, communist soldiers arrest them, tie them up, force them to lie down on the grass outside of their home, burned their home, and said, tomorrow we're going to kill you. Um, They were killed because they were considered bad blood uh, enemies of the glorious revolution so they were brought out into a desert area forced to dig their own graves and the story goes like this the killers were generous they allowed their victims a moment of prayer to prepare themselves for death parents and children held hands and knelt together near the open grave After his family finished their prayers, Haim exhorted the communists and all those looking on to repent and believe in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. As he was saying these things, one of Haim's youngest sons leapt to his feet, bolted to the nearby forest, and disappeared. Haim was amazingly cool as he persuaded the soldiers, do not chase the boy, but allow me to call the boy back. While the family still knelt, the father pleaded with his son to return and to die with them. This is what he said. Think, my son, can stealing a few more days of life as a fugitive in that forest compare to joining your family here in a grave, but soon forever free in paradise? In tears, the boy walked back knelt down on the ground with his family, and Haim said to the executioners, we are ready to depart. But none of the soldiers who were there would kill them. They had just witnessed the power of the gospel, a love for Christ being greater than anything in this world. So they waited. They didn't know what to do. Finally, hours later, an officer who had not been there to witness the scene came and shot all of the Christians. What would lead somebody to do that? What would lead somebody to say, come back, die with us, because you have something better waiting for you? 2 Corinthians chapter 4, this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Haim believed that. His family believed that. My question is, do you believe that? Is Jesus worth it? Do you value him more than anything in this world? Only that kind of a value system will make you stand in a grave that you have dug excited to be with Jesus. I can live with the world's hate if I have the Savior's love. Father, we thank you for our time. What a rich time that we are able to spend in your word. And we do pray for our brothers and sisters around the world. We pray with them that you would preserve them, strengthen them, give them perseverance to the end. May their persecutors see the glory on their faces, just like Stephen, his face shone like an angel. Just like Himes persecutors and murderers. May they hear the gospel and see it lived out as believers would shout with their very lives to the very end, Jesus is better by far than anything this world has to offer. To live as Christ, to die as gain. Prepare our hearts for that moment and may we be faithful to pray for our brothers and sisters even at this very moment who are going through this persecution. We love you. You are worth it. We want to scream that with every fiber of our being and the way we live our lives. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.